0: Tracy, you know, the high price of energy obviously has put a lot of increased interest once again on energy transition, cleaner energy, cheaper energy. But the thing that strikes me about 2022 so far is the world is using more coal than ever.
1: (laughs) Right. I think if there's one thing we can internalize from like the lessons of 2020 to 2022, it's that A, things we expected to happen have not happened, and B, on that note, the energy transition is just a lot messier and a lot less linear than I think a lot of people expected. People expected, like, you know, once EVs became widely available, someone somewhere would flip a switch, everyone (laughs) would shift their dependency away from gas into electricity. And the problem would kind of be solved and all these dirty energy industries like coal, like oil would be resigned to the, the dustbin yeah. of history, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think the 2010s sort of lulled us into maybe this false sense of complacency about the future of fossil fuels or uh, dirty, dirtier sources of energy. And I think, you know, we we had the, especially starting in 2014, this big drop in the price of oil. Combined with the boom in electric cars. And I think a lot of people sort of thought, like, okay, well, this is like, this is the final chapter of the oil era, the fossil fuels era. It's going to fade over time. You know, people over a long time into oblivion, but sort of this linear down. And of course, now oil is exploding. And not only that, these other, you know, sort of coal has bounced back and there's sort of this very intense impulse now to expand production at least in the short to medium term of uh, energy sources to bring prices down
1: right i think a couple years ago no one would have expected governments uh, you know liberal governments from mm-hmm. europe to yeah. the us the biden administration to basically say like we need more energy. We need more oil to be drilled. We need more energy coming from somewhere, preferably cleaner energy. But if we have to, we will also look at dirtier forms of energy as well. Like that was totally unexpected.
0: Right. And everyone long term is like, yeah, electrification of everything and hopefully more renewables, maybe even some nuclear and stuff like that. But in the short to medium term, suddenly there's just this big urge to get the price of energy down. So it raises the question, if we were like lulled into this false sense of complacency last decade, like what are we getting wrong in our thinking Hmm. and what will the energy transition ultimately look like? Absolutely. All right. So I am very excited about this guest, someone who has been talking for many years, long before the 2021-22 cycle, who has been making this argument that people are wrong about how energy sources die or wrong about how commodities get replaced by something new. We are going to be speaking with Bob Brackett. He's a senior analyst covering natural resources at Bernstein, and he's been covering the resource space in various capacities for about 30 years. So, Bob, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Tracy, for having me. So how is that that like there, people have been like wanting to kill coal? forever, it seems like. And, you know, there's been so little uh, funding of coal, like all these banks got out of like financing coal. Everyone's like, this is over. I remember, you know, big thing and like last decade was like, what are we going to, you know, let's train all the coal workers to learn to code and things like that. And yet here in 2022, the world is using more coal than it ever has in history. Like, how did that happen? So it it happened. It's sort of on the supply side, and it happened on the
2: demand side. And on the demand side, that the reality is energy transitions just take time. If we think about coal, uh, clearly on the demand side, there is just an inherent demand for the utility that coal provides. Right? Nobody actually wants to consume coal. Right. No one wakes up and says, "I wish I had some coal." People wake up and say, "I want electricity." <laughs> right. right? I want right. the things that a lifestyle that electricity engenders. And so if we can't provide that electricity from other means, because we can't ramp renewable spending capital fast enough, if we can't tackle issues around intermittency and security of supply, then you fall back on what's available, and that's coal. And so that's the call on demand. On the supply side, if you're a coal miner, and you're building assets that last decades, you were terrified about what the future, what the last 10 years of that asset could look like. Right. It could have no terminal value. So as a result, your your burden, your risked return, your cost of capital, however you want to call it, you just end up being afraid to sanction long-term supply. And then you end up in this sort of perpetual
0: tightness. Yeah, and Tracy, you know, I'm thinking about some of the conversations we've had with Jeff Curry and, you know, this the vault trap, like this idea, it's like, okay, Prices are high right now. But if everyone is like talking about some peak in Mm. a few years in consumption, like why invest?
1: Hmm. How much does regulation play into a story like coal? Because Mm. one of the interesting things about coal is it's I, I don't think it's ever really been considered a good source of energy. Like it's always had certain connotations. It's always been dirty to actually get out of the ground, dirty to store in your house, uh, which I'm experiencing now because I just discovered we have a large pile of coal in the basement, um, which is fun.
0: (laughs) Uh, Of course, Tracy. (laughs) Of course, Tracy has a basement full of coal. Like, that is a very Tracy thing. Anyway, keep going.
1: All right. And, you know, associations with child labor and things like that. It, It feels like coal has sort of been vilified for most of its history. So how does that play into its life cycle?
2: Yeah, it's funny, and, and I forget the king of England who attempted to ban coal uh, half, half a millennium ago and, and utterly wow. failed. Coal has an externality. In the old days, the, the externality around coal was the was the soot and the emissions and the socks and the NOx. and we've mostly, as a planet, cleaned that up, and today the externality is carbon dioxide. But it's kind of always had hmm. an externality, and despite that, it has always had a utility that's that's overcome that. And so it is just an incredibly geologically unique store of energy. And it's just very hard to find a substitute. And the other aspect, even today, what we're seeing is politicians, uh, regulators, you know, they, they don't like coal for its externalities, but they also like cheap electricity mm. for the voting population. And so we're even seeing... Uh, in the U.S., we're seeing in Europe, we're seeing softening of taxes against hydrocarbons. And that sort of short termism, I've got to keep the, the penalty of inflation against my my voting population, even though in the long term, I really have to tackle this thing.
0: The king who tried to ban coal in 1285 King Edward I, I only know that because I read it in your note in 20, you wrote (laughs) it. So uh, this whole, you know, we we wanted to talk to you because you wrote this amazing sort of this long piece at Bernstein in 2017, basically talk about what people get wrong about the energy transition. And what the theme seems to be that in our heads, you know, when we think about transition or we think about disruption, we think the iPhone comes along and then like two years later, there's no Palm Pilots or one year later, there's no flip phones. Like it just something better comes along. And then the old thing is over. And sort of the thrust of your note is that no, like energy just doesn't work like that. And having this sort of like tech framework of disruption leads you to some bad paths when thinking about the future of commodities or the future of energy.
2: Exactly. And, and the genesis of this book that I wrote was effectively a uh, debate Uh, with the ever so popular tech analysts here at Bernstein, Mm -hmm. where the metaphors they were using for the energy transition were digital cameras displacing analog cameras and flat screens displacing CRTs and smartphones displacing dumb phones. And my caution, my rather lengthy caution was in in natural resources industries, in depletion-based industries where you need just a lot of capital not only to grow, but just to stay flat, that that dynamic is different. And in those sorts of environments where it's not a consumer electronic device, transitions can take decades and decades and decades. So that that was ultimately the genesis of why uh, I wrote The Scribe.
1: Well, could you go into that in a little bit more detail? Like, why is energy different from a consumer good? Why does the transition seem to be more complex? And why does it definitely take longer?
2: It comes to the supply side being afraid of the future. And and the the term I've coined for oil is this green wolf at the door. That if you're investing Mm -hmm. in hydrocarbons, you know, someday that green wolf at the door is going to come in, and you're just afraid to, to not earn a return on your capital, not strand your asset. My favorite analog, and I've got a couple, is the mercury industry. So the US Geological Survey posts the annual volumes, price, and revenues for the mercury industry over the last hundred years. Hmm. And store to say, well, mercury is terrible. Talk about a bad product, right? Think think mad hatters, think insanity. Think of all of the the terrible things mercury does, but the mercury industry has never had higher revenues. And the reason is, is there is sticky demand for mercury in a bunch of niche uh, uses that are very hard to displace. And only a fool would open a mercury mine today, right? Just to think about uh, what that would take. So the supply side that requires capital to keep going has said, I just can't deploy capital here. And the demand side says well but i really don't have a substitute yet and so the mercury industry is going to end someday in a time measured in decades but it's going to go out at high prices and a lack of supply not with the shelves full of products the way a consumer electronic device that's that's defunct
1: uh would so how should investors actually think about that because i feel like this is where things get really tricky especially when it comes to oil so Everyone, I think, pretty much agrees that oil is going to go away someday. The question is just how long it's going to take and then whether or not there are these sort of big peaks and troughs in oil use um, in the meantime during the transition. And as we've seen in recent years, it just feels really difficult for investors and also the energy businesses themselves to get a handle on because how do you plan for the future if you're expected not to have one, and the question is just how long it's going to take.
2: The, the one misconception out there is this concept when the demand for a product starts to fall, the price for the product starts to fall. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, if you think back to your classic economics 101, the price of something is where marginal cost meets marginal supply. And if the marginal supply is running away from you, then there's no requirement that price fall. And so if you believe the the mercury analogy that I shared with you, if you believe the asbestos analogy, if you kind of believe coal, right, we're trying to get rid of coal and prices at all time high, then the answer is the oil and gas companies are afraid to deploy long cycle assets, right? 10, 20, 30 year types of projects. They're generating record cash flows, certainly as we go into earnings in the next week or two. And the response for the typical U.S. E&P that I follow is, I'm just going to return that cash to shareholders and let them decide what to do with it, right? So I don't know when my industry is over. Uh, It's a twilight. But in the meantime investors, you take the cash and you decide how to redeploy. And I will manage my best short-term high return investments uh, as that happens.
0: So obviously we're going to have to do a Mercury episode at some point <laughs> in the future. But actually I do have, <laughs> I want to go back to Mercury real quickly. When you say the Mercury will come to an end, is there a substitute like what that exists for Mercury? Like, is there a reason that at some point there won't be future Mercury demand?
2: so it, it gets to the end uses so luckily like mercury gets used in the mining sector for example oh. certainly by artisanal miners it can be displaced with cyanide which you know there's a whole bag of worms <laughs> there um the there are medical uses as well uh, there are some industrial uses Got and it. yeah I, I mean yeah there, there have to be workarounds but yes and then at some point like we see with other metals we can get to a world where there's enough efficient recycling of mercury that that demand can get met that way, but we're just not quite there yet.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you another question, and I guess it's about coal and the failure of the sort of typical tech disruption frame. Seems to me that there is a way to view this as like coal is the disruptive technology. I mean, again, all these things sort of break down because coal's been around forever. But if you think like, Here's a really cheap form of energy. It's like really powerful form of energy. like you get a lot of electricity out of it and it's cheap. then you know you could probably make the argument that you know, if you're willing to tolerate the externalities, yes, it's worse for the air, yes, it emits a lot of carbon. that on a sort of like strictly like like for-like basis, that one might consider coal the disruptor of natural gas or the disruptor of, of oil.
1: Should all the tech ETFs get into coal? Yeah, is that right. what you're saying?
0: You can very quickly see how some of the like tech thinking could like really break down or lead you astray. It's like, well, which one is the real disruptor here?
2: If the planet had over invested in lng and other sources of natural gas and if If we were
0: getting all of our energy from windmills then i'm sure coal would be a massive disruptor to that yeah so if we'd started in the (laughs)
2: reverse and and if everything was a wind turbine yeah we would have this issue of intermittency the wind patterns change daily and seasonally and sometimes not at all and if someone came and said i've got this product it's very dense it has a lot of energy and look at it can burn Twenty-four-seven and be a base load of right. power. Yeah, it would be a remarkable uh, disruption.
1: <laughs> so I have maybe a strange question. You know, we're talking about disruption and new technologies and things coming in to replace other types of commodities. In history, has there been like a, a good example of a commodity just going completely away? Because it feels like even the really questionable stuff like mercury still finds some sort of use. And even things that happen vilified like coal, as we've been discussing, or like tobacco, for instance, those yeah. are all, you know, they're still around. They're still big industries and, and they're still in the case of tobacco, still quite profitable.
2: That is a strange question and it's one that I went to answer. And so I Oh good. Okay. I'm not the only 80- one. <laughs> yeah. I looked at eighty-four different commodities. And over the last 120 years, it said which one of them went away. A category of them that are deadly on average declines single digits a year. So even the deadliest, um, mm. the cesiums of the world, the asbestos, the mercury, hmm. even those things tend to go away slowly. I didn't find a commodity that was radically displaced on any short-term time horizon. I believe the closest you could come was strontium, where the, the biggest source of demand for strontium uh, was in, in CRTs, the old TVs we used to use. And so when flat screens came in, mm. strontium demand fell. But that was the exception, right? That's, that was kind of the 1% club, the, the reality. Uh, and it goes back to Jevons' paradox, which which was, uh, again, a, a guy looking at coal at the end of the, the 1800s, generally just commodity demand rises it's hard to find commodities that we use less of
0: remind us what jevons paradox is
2: so the jevons paradox was that the more efficient you got at producing coal the more you use and it works for road systems it works for a number of things but yeah. the, the, the classic example is hey i've got a, a four-lane highway i'll make it an eight-lane highway and then congestion will fall right and then every time we build an eight lane highway congestion rises and so it was kind of yeah as you try to improve the efficiency of something right. uh, you actually increase the consumption of it so
0: going back to oil for a second because as you've said like you actually do think there will be an end date for oil or at least oil as a source of maybe fuel for automobiles like what does that look like and what is how are you thinking about the long term time frame of when the oil age comes to an end and how is it replaced? And, you know, like, what what do you tell people when they say like, how long is the future of oil? How long do we have here? Part of it is just
2: a mentality shift. So through most of my career, looking at oil and gas investment, people believed in peak oil supply, right? It was Hubbard's Peak. It was the Association for the Society of Peak Oil. It was Twilight in the Desert. And we all thought in, in hindsight, incorrectly, that we would run out of supply. And in that world, you have sanction a project and you say, eh, maybe it's over budget, maybe it's late, maybe it's not quite up to snuff on deliverability, but price will bail me out. And so as long as the mentality of scarcity existed in my sector, we as an industry kept growing uh, mm. oil and gas supply. And in the last five-ish years, That mentality has pivoted to this world of the end of oil demand. So we're going to run out of oil demand before supply. And that's where all the capital allocation mentality completely flips from sort of, I'll I'll lean into it, into fear. That's what's driving kind of what could be perpetual tightness. Now, in terms of when does the oil age end, the way we think about oil, we, we divide oil into six Big buckets. In reality, oil into a refinery produces dozens and hundreds of products. But we think about gasoline for passenger travel, diesel for, you know, think rail, trucks, Mm -hmm. trains, uh, vessels, marine vessels, and then uh, pet chems for plastics, jet fuel for air travel, and then into more obscure buckets. The obvious bucket that gets disrupted is gasoline, right? So EVs attack gasoline demand to some degree, the hydrogen economy attacks diesel demand. But even under a range of reasonable assumptions, oil demand should rise into the 2030s. Perhaps it's 10% higher than it is today. And then it enters kind of this gradual plateau. We as a planet are still looking for ways to substitute jet fuel, air travel. Air travel grows with GDP. Mm-hmm. So if GDP, not this year, but if GDP grows 3% a year, uh, then jet fuel demands growing 3% a year and compounds in the next 10, 20 years. And how do we substitute air travel in, in any meaningful timeframe? So, so the answer is think of a plateau. Think of the 2030s as where that plateau starts to be visible. And think of the supply side of the equation being much more afraid of that plateau than the demand side.
1: This is a tough question, I think. But in your opinion, when it comes to encouraging that transition from gas and oil to a more electrified future, what's the best way or the most effective way of doing that? Is it something on the demand side? Is it trying to, you know, encourage a better or a larger supply side response? Or is it, you know, government intervention coming in and subsidizing things like electric cars? Like, what is most effective here?
2: So the subsidies have been the path people have accepted. Norway is the the perfect experiment for the the energy transition for EVs. But we have yet to see, for example, Norwegian oil demand roll over significantly. And so huh. I think the answer is, and what Norway has done is through subsidies, and of course, it's a, a well developed economy, it's a wealthy economy, and, and they can afford those sorts of tools that a broader adoption just can't afford. And so if you can't really tackle it on the demand side, you have to tackle it on the supply side. Now, selfishly, I would argue that the mining side, which I also cover, is the obvious bottleneck. And so in theory, supporting mining in your home country, in your home region, or supporting mining in general, the the industry, if you think about, I I spend a lot of time thinking about shale, right? So shale was a massive disruptor to, to what I did for a living for a long period of time. And shale was a manufacturing process that we did hundred thousand times, and we drove the cost of it down massively just through that classic learning curve. As we look at building EVs, we're going to go from a planet that sold ten thousand EVs and then one hundred thousand and now north of a million, we'll get to ten million someday, and those learning curves will just reduce the cost of all the manufacturing parts of the the EV supply chain. but You know, mining, the extractive industries just follow a a different drummer, and those get tougher over time. We drill the best wells first. We find the best copper mines first. We mine the best grades first. And so, to me, encouraging the supply side, the metal side of the battery revolution, would be something policymakers could do. And frankly, that's the toughest. Part because it's the one place where local ESG issues mm-hmm. are fighting full force against global ESG issues.
0: Mm. I'm really fascinated by this idea that there's a shift in mentality when everyone went from talk about peak supply. And I think, you know, we all remember, I used to read the oil drum, that blog years ago, where everyone talked about like peak oil and we were going to run out of oil. and then Oh, wow. They shut down.
1: I remember that yeah. one. Yeah.
0: That was a great resource. I'd love to have them back now because the the people on that site would be great contributors to sort of the current discussion. But I remember, you know, peak oil, There's like this huge mm-hmm. thing. And now, as you mentioned, now it's all about the concerns over peak oil demand. And that's really changed the sort of mentality and calculus of the industry. Is there anything that could flip it back in terms of the industry really wanting to ramp up investment again? Or do you think this is going to be a long-term, I don't know if permanent, but a very long-term persisting thing where even with soaring prices, and actually oil has come down a bit lately, but even with highly elevated prices, that impulse to really expand production just isn't going to come back.
2: It takes some fairly sci-fi scenarios you know during the pandemic yeah. we were spending as a planet, roughly 350 billion dollars a year on, on upstream oil and gas. Pre-pandemic, it was half a trillion, 500 okay. billion. And then back in the glory days of too much capEx, it started to approach a trillion. Yeah. So the idea that it ever gets back to those levels, it's just hard. We know the typical US. E&P doesn't plan to grow more than three, five percent. We know the typical European integrated energy company is ex-oil growth and is reallocating capital to the energy transition, for mobility solution, renewables, et cetera. And so you're kind of left with OPEC plus to not only increase their capital, but increase it enough to offset the falling CapEx in, in these other buckets. And for them to do that would be sort of to willingly flood the market that they control. So that seems at first plus blush irrational. Mm -hmm. So yeah, except for a world where a a sequestration technology, direct direct air capture worked, and we could flip a switch for next to nothing and put all the CO2 that we needed uh, away, then you'd say, well, we've solved the externality. Now let's go produce more hydrocarbons. But that's decades, that's more than decades away.
1: This is also an extreme question, but isn't... (laughs) I feel like you you have these like deep thoughts on the industry so we can ask you these questions. Yes. But is nationalization a possibility yeah. here? Like we have seen some instances of that in or at least one instance of that in Europe. And if you think of an industry that, you know, it's responding rationally to what the market is telling it. But on the other hand, you know, this is a vital resource. People need oil at reasonable prices in order to live their lives, at least at the moment. Would something like that make sense?
2: I I spent uh, years as a management consultant serving a huge host of national oil companies. And there is a spectrum, of extremely high quality national oil yeah. companies and extremely low quality ones. It's a bit of a philosophical view, mm. right? Can can the state uh, be a better deliverer of volumes than the private market? Clearly, on the, the choice of utilities, most nations have decided that utilities need to be heavily regulated, but still stay in private hands with a very strong government overprint. And that's you know, more or less worked, sometimes less so than others. But yeah, wholesale nationalization, you know, by and large, has not succeeded for the typical oil company. And part of it is if you think about an oil company, their core capabilities are taking risk, uh, managing contractors, and allocating capital. And putting those three, especially risk-taking, into political hands, generally just the, the incentives just aren't aligned.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask about another niche commodity because you wrote about it and it seems instructive. The first chapter of your big paper is about uh, rubber and how we actually have a superior technology that exists today today to rubber, and yet rubber hasn't gone away. What's the story there? I found that really interesting.
2: It goes back to the days where if you were caught smuggling rubber seeds or saplings out of Brazil, the, the penalty was the death penalty, right? This wow. this was a commodity that made parts of Brazil extremely wealthy. It was a commodity that during wartime was at such high demand that we we launched effectively a Manhattan project to try to find synthetic alternatives. Wow. And so- By and large, the old approach to rubber was a plantation. You you grow rubber plants, you harvest them, and you make natural rubber. And then synthetic rubber, petrochemical pathways were determined that could make synthetic rubber. And they each have slightly different properties, and they exist, they coexist in kind of a 50-50 share even today. And so rubber, if, if the analogy is electric vehicles... I think a lot of people that follow S curves and think about adoption mm-hmm. think about binary yeah. 100% or 0%. You know, if if EVs turn out to be like rubber, you get to a 50% penetration. There's lots of internal combustion engines, lots of EVs. And rubber tells you that huh. that that's a plausible path.
1: Since we're throwing out uh, random commodities, can I ask? Can we, a- can we make a game show? I feel <laughs> now do fertilizer. Seriously, no. it's like um, commodity
0: <laughs> commodities with Bob. Commodities with bracket, where the audience just throws. Let's do a live event with Bob, and the audience uh, I just think gets to throw good. a commodity out. And he can tell the history. It of Gets it, to and, throw commodities at me. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll plan this. I think it'll be a fun event. Anyway, uh, keep going.
1: Nothing unsafe though, like yeah. mercury. That would be bad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay, uh, random commodity. It's not really random. But can we talk about copper for a little bit? Yeah. Because I think this is one instance where, again, the short-term versus long-term trajectory or the tension there comes into play. Because we've had people on the show... Uh, Notably, the analysts over at Goldman Sachs talking about how they are extremely bullish on copper over the longer term, and I think most people would agree that if we are moving to a more electronic future, we will need a lot of copper in order to make that possible. But on the other hand, if you look at a chart of the copper price right now, it's down. It's down a lot. It's down a lot. Yeah, uh, scientific term. It's down quite a lot. So clearly, like. There's a mismatch there between the long-run expectations and the short-run expectations. So how are you thinking about copper?
2: So the the nickname that copper earns is Dr. Copper. Copper has a PhD in economics. And in the short run, we have tools where we, we, from Bloomberg, pull every macro indicator you can think of and see what correlates best with copper. And copper can smell the economy better than just about any other commodity. And so in the short run, it's extremely rational what copper is doing. It's smelling uh, some level of a recession and it's responding. In the long run, it's phenomenal. But so in the short run, the good news is uh, we know that as far as copper can fall. So, for example, when copper mines get to zero EBITDA, when the cost of that worst ton of copper in the market equals the revenue of that ton of copper, those mines go to care and maintenance. And that's a great way to sort of prevent the free fall in all but the worst recessions. And so you know where your downside is on copper. On the upside, you know the, the very simple way to think about it is for the planet uses about 25 million tons of copper a year, of mined copper. Each EV we add is about 0.1 tons, 100 kilograms. So if we get to a world where every vehicle is an EV, that's 100 million rounding up vehicles a year. Mm -hmm. That's 10 million tons of copper. So we've got to not only keep the copper demand in the broader economy at that 25 million, we've got to add 10. And in a world where we have watched copper grades fall for 100 years, uh, in a world where ESG issues around local communities saying, Wait a minute, why do I have to bear the brunt of mining to help the EV market, some electric vehicle in, in the OECD, for example, right? There really is a, a strong mismatch between where that demand could be and that supply could be. So we similarly look in, at are very bullish long-term copper.
0: There's some people that look at the high price of oil right now, or the high price of natural gas. And they say like, good, this will accelerate the transition. This will encourage more market forces to, you know, invest in battery technology or people to buy EVs, et cetera. On the flip side, though, the 2010s, and particularly the second half of the 2010s, even after oil crashed, like is essentially when the EV industry grew up or really started to become a thing. And obviously Tesla had a phenomenal decade it basically invented the modern industry. And now all these other car players are scrambling to catch up. The 2010s were also a really big decade for installed wind and solar capacity around the world. So even in a period of low commodity prices, it didn't seem to be an impediment towards a rapid expansion of renewables and alternatives. And so I guess my question is, do high prices actually prove to be an accelerant of transition or new technologies, or is the price mechanism or the short-term price mechanism kind of irrelevant for the longer-term transition? Yeah, so I,
2: I think the jury's out, but I'll throw out a... So one thought is that what you mentioned is almost a second-order thinking, which is, hey, the price of oil is high, that yeah. will hasten hey, substitution. Let me invest in the substitutes. The first order thinking is the price of oil is high. Let me invest in oil, right? right That's kind right, right. of the, or the coal. simpler. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or coal. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I'll throw into the mix is high stable prices are much more likely to drive substitution than the incredibly volatile prices yeah. that we've seen. So and to some degree, the fact that oil was negative two years ago, was mm-hmm. okay last year, is great right now, doesn't provide... A, a stable competitor against which to plan the energy transition.
0: What about here, like the role of government? So, setting aside nationalization, are there other things governments c- could theoretically do to de risk production? You know, you mentioned every resource player is worried that of the last 10 years of the life of this mine will actually be a zero because the transition is coming. Are there other things that policymakers could do to de-risk some of these decisions?
2: What policymakers should do is reduce the demand for the things they want to get rid of and not subsidize that demand, even though in the short run that's quite painful. And it almost harkens back to Jimmy Carter, where President Carter told the nation, wear a sweater, uh, uh, reduce speed limits to 55. So there's lots of things you can do to reduce demand. We have not seen the political will to do that. And in fact, some of those efforts get mocked.
1: Right. So instead of reducing speed limits this time around, we've reduced taxes on gas, right?
2: Right. And so that's counterproductive if your goal is to reduce the price of something. You know, Subsidizing the price of something doesn't reduce its demand. But but telling Americans, for example, hey, covid During COVID, we were very effective at reducing oil demand. So we'd ask all of you to stay home for another year to reduce oil demand. Feels like a
0: non-starter.
1: I would be very in favor of that policy. I think we should all stay at home.
0: At any mention of more reasons to work from home. I like coming into the office. I like recording in the same studio as you, Oh, say, thank
1: I you, do. Joe. <laughs> thank you. Yeah,
2: so certainly in, in the short run, markets will do what they're going yeah. to do. And, and a lot of what we've talked about is kind of that long run. But yeah, I think the answer is when we come out of this recession, we're going to go back to a world of lower rates. Right In the long run, we, our, our strategist has a chart showing interest rates for thousands of years. They all trend towards zero. So someday rates will fall again, yeah. and someday that will incentivize investment. But that investment, right? we need to spend a lot of money, not in the metaverse, but back in the physical yeah. world, and it's going to be rebuilding our energy systems, maybe building redundant energy systems, given the, how geopolitics has, uh, has caught everybody up this year. And we've not only got to underpin our old energy systems, the hydrocarbon-based ones, We've got to build electrical-based systems, and so there's just going to be a lot of activity in the physical world once we get out of the, the time we're in now.
0: This metaverse thing is proving to be a real distraction. <laughs> I mean, it's like we have a lot of work to do in the in real the real world. world. Yeah, of like actual molecules instead of pixels. Like we gotta get we gotta get people focused on the real world again, don't we?
1: <laughs> I feel like that's what we've been yeah, doing for I- the past two years.
2: I I was uh, last week in eastern Namibia at a site visit for an oil and gas explorer out there. And to see a local Namibian collecting seismic data, dressed like Iron Man, with these nodes that he's pushing into the ground that are GPS linked, uh, and he's collecting data. and, And you look and say, that is so much more sophisticated and interesting than the next app that gets me my yeah.
0: burger. It, you know, and we talked about this. We did a recent episode with uh, Peter Tertzakian about like this idea of like how much the sort of talent drain that the uh, that the extractive industries have seen, especially over the last decade and for all kinds of reasons. Do people not appreciate like how much tech is involved with extraction these days? And like, is there a lot of uh, exciting tech on the horizon, even if it's just to get better like, you know, finding natural gas or finding other resources?
2: Yeah, it's a completely missed story. And if you think about GPUs, before crypto needed GPUs (laughs) for mining, the oil and gas industry was buying everyone they could for doing seismic processing and interpretation and 3D reservoir modeling. And so it's an extremely data-intensive industry, software-intensive industry, tech-intensive industry. The capital projects are bigger than anything we do short of moon launches, and it's just sort of you know, assumed to be part of the old economy. So yeah, I'm, I'm a huge proselytizer for for how cool oil yeah. and gas tech is.
1: I was going to ask, this kind of raises the question of why venture capital doesn't hmm. get more involved in this space. Is it just it's easier to go into software with you know lower startup costs and less capital actually needed versus big, you know, projects in the real world?
2: Yeah, part of it might just be that sort of capital is the the riskiest taking capital. And so maybe they're looking at right, an oil and gas field. Once it's in development, Yeah, you know, it's reasonably well understood what the economics could be. And maybe venture capital is looking for things that could massively disrupt the future of the world. But not clear to me.
0: Bob, this was like if, such if a treat. only for the value. Oh, sorry, I
2: was just gonna say, yeah, for lateral thinking, I would encourage any investor to spend as much time thinking laterally as they can,
0: uh, even if it's an obscure. So what do you mean by that when you market. say thinking laterally? I, what does that mean?
2: Just you know, stepping out of your sector of the market and just looking yeah. across the market, looking across history, just saying you know, what does this resemble? What does this feel like? What sort of interesting angles that other sectors have taken that could be applicable here? Mm
0: -hmm. Bob Brackett, this is a a real treat, very interesting thinker on these questions and sort of like kind of mind expanding. So appreciate you so much for coming on online.
2: My pleasure, Joe. My pleasure, Tracy. Thanks so much. Thanks Thanks.
1: so much, Bob. That was great.
2: Yeah, that was really fun.
0: was really good uh that was this idea that like commodities just don't get disrupted that they live on forever the fact that there's been a war on coal since the 1200s <laughs> since the 13th century it's like really <laughs> useful stuff i think to appreciate when thinking about these problems
1: totally i i love looking at historic parallels yeah. for for these types of things and the one thing that struck me like yes absolutely energy transitions or transitions away from commodities never seem to be linear and they never seem to happen completely going by history. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting that Bob pointed out was this idea that there is an assumption that as people start moving away from a commodity, the price will go down. But demand is only one half of the supply demand equation. And so if you have capacity cut at the same time, then prices can actually go up.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really important idea. And again, I think we sort of got lulled into, you know, one is, again, we think in the frame of consumer tech and like a new, you know, flat screen TVs come along and then whoever still holds the stock of, you know, normal TVs mm-hmm. like sells them super cheap just to get rid of the inventory, right? And so that is the frame that we think demand for something goes down and then whoever has it just sells it for very little. But in the case of CapEx heavy extractive industries, Everyone can see those charts. I don't know whether it's going to be 2027, 2037, 2047, that like oil peaks, but everyone's looking at those charts and you could have a situation where because demand is going down, supply contracts even faster.
1: Right. And the other thing that struck me, I really like the phrase Bob used was local ESG versus global ESG, because this is something that, you know, we recorded an episode on this recently when it comes to Chile and deserts and things like that. But it does seem like there is a tension here. The sort of like everyone agrees that we need to get more metals out of the earth in order to electrify our future, but no one really wants to be the place that's actually doing the mining.
0: Yeah, it's a real big tension because as we know, like rich countries, more EVs, large corporate interests in decarbonization, and everyone has their like climate goals. They're like 2050 net zero or whatever. And every company wants to tout its green credentials. They're offsetting all their emissions or whatever. But on the other hand, these industries like copper, like lithium, et cetera, they damage the water supply, they may damage the air supply. Like these are like really dirty industries on a local basis. And this tension I'm sure is only going to increase. And the math that Bob laid out about copper demand, mm. like going to be a huge burden.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, That strikes me is like it does really seem like there is a role for the government to Mm -hmm. play here in trying to smooth some of these cycles or offset some of these like longer term motivations and concerns. Maybe not as extreme as outright nationalism, which I don't think would happen in the U.S. at least, but other ways, as he outlined.
0: Yeah. And of course, we you know, we had that recent conversation with mm-hmm. Skanda and Rory about, you know, could the SPR be used to smooth the booms yeah. and busts? And in theory, that's a model that could be applied to other commodities, et cetera, to create that guarantee of demand so that people aren't terrified by demand curves that, uh you know, eventually start turning down. But it's going to be really tricky.
1: All those scary demand curves. All right, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. Follow our producer Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.